And that's because Becker said self-esteem is an anxiety buffer. We demonstrated that that's the case. We brought people into the lab and threatened them with electrical shocks. And after we momentarily elevated their self-esteem by like giving them fake feedback on a IQ test, it was remarkable. But just uh, having your self-esteem momentarily enhanced reduced physiological arousal in anticipation of an actual physical threat. In other words, self-esteem is pretty potent stuff. However, it, it, there's a downside to using self-esteem uh, in order to manage existential anxieties. A and the downside is that uh, the way that we get self-esteem is by adhering to the dominant values of our culture. A and we live in a culture that, um, to, I don't mind annoying people, uh, in America, we're essentially narcissistic sociopaths who are only concerned about being the best at whatever it is that we do. A and so to have uh, enhanced self-esteem in America in the 21st century requires almost that we inflate ourselves to ridiculous proportions while looking down on those who we uh, need to see as inferior to us. What role does the awareness of death play in existential and social life? That is the key theme of this conversation. Sheldon Solomon is a social psychologist at Skidmore College, one of the developers of terror management theory, and has dedicated a significant portion of his life to understanding death and the role that it plays in our lives. Here, we talk about social psychology, psychiatry, a bit about positive psychology, terror management theory, existential philosophy, and some related social and political issues. If you like the podcast and want to support the work, consider subscribing to the YouTube channel. That really helps us out. Here, is my conversation with Sheldon Solomon. Yeah, so maybe the best place to start off is how did you get interested into Becker's work? Well, um, to be silly and honest, uh, quite by accident. Um, I was a young professor at Skidmore College, and um, I came here in the fall of 1980. Um, and I was asked to teach a class in personality theory, which I knew very little about. And I was actually on my, I was in the library uh, trying to find the bookshelves uh, with Freud's books. And I passed by um, a few books that caught my eye. Um, and um, literally it was because one of them had little green spots on the cover and that turned out to be a paperback version of Ernest Becker's book The Birth and Death of Meaning and, and I, I just found that to be an interesting title and I, I yanked the book off the library shelf and in the first paragraph uh, Ernest Becker wrote that he was interested in trying to uh, delineate the motivational underpinnings of human behavior, but he didn't say it in such a turgid way. He said, I want to understand why people do what they do when they do it. And I was like, this is so refreshing. Me too. And then right next to that book uh, was the book, The, the Denial of Death. Uh, and Becker 
Um, I never met him. He was dead in 1980. Uh, he won the Pulitzer Prize uh, in 1973, I believe, and was the only one to ever win a Pulitzer Prize and not be alive to receive it. Um, but in the first paragraph of his book, The Denial of Death, um, he writes that in his estimation, uh, it is the uniquely human awareness of death, uh, along with our disinclination to accept the reality of the human condition, that is the that underlies a substantial proportion of human activity. And, and I, I was like, at that point, I, I was really uh, taken because that was congruent with my own personal experience. And so this brought me back 20 years earlier uh, when I was eight years old, the day that my grandmother died. And I realized later that day that I too would someday die. And so for me, this has uh, been a very personal as well as a professional journey. I've been disinclined to die since as long as I can remember. And, and I found Becker's ideas about the pervasive effect that the awareness of death and our resistance to it uh, has on almost everything that people do. I have found that to be quite compelling. Right. It's it's strange how Becker really does have all these important things to say about sort of the conceptual foundations of psychology, but his work is included amongst the people who tend to inform psychology and how it develops later on. Yes, that's right. Fair enough. He was, um, in our opinion, uh, one of the most important and least um, regarded uh, uh, the thinkers of the uh, 20th century. He had a very difficult time uh, getting and keeping jobs, in part because he insisted on interdisciplinary inquiry back in the day when that wasn't all that popular. And uh, moreover, he managed to annoy everybody. So he was a cultural anthropologist um, using ideas from psychoanalysis and existential philosophy in order to make bold claims about human behavior at a time when psychological discourse was moving away uh, from these kinds of grand theories uh, in favor of more microscopically focused efforts to understand particular phenomenon in a rigorously empirical way. And there's nothing wrong with that, except that in our estimation, what that did was to preclude serious consideration of Becker's ideas, you know, for half a century. That, that's a very good point that prior to sort of that era of, of theory, uh, there wasn't really a strict division between what we would today call psychology and today call sociology. Uh, but later that splintered off in a, in a big, big way. Yes, I think that's right. And so to the extent that of we, my buddies and I, Jeff Greenberg and Tom Pazinski and I were graduate students together at the University of Kansas in the 1970s, um, in 1980 and 1981, when I became aware of Becker's books, I, Tom and Jeff read them. We agreed that this was... Uh, interesting, engaging, and provocative. Um, 
we would uh, we went to speak at lots of conferences and our our colleagues hated it we could clear a room of famous psychologists in minutes um our efforts to just publish papers describing becker's ideas were routinely rejected uh, for the better part of a decade uh, until um an editor um said to us and and rightfully he's like look these ideas are fascinating, but you will never be taken seriously in academic psychology uh, in the absence of empirical evidence. And then to be silly and annoying, he was like, and you are experimental psychologists, so why don't you give it a go? And that's essentially what we've been doing for the last 40 years is to take um, Becker's ideas and to frame them in ways that allow us to generate hypotheses that could then be subjected to empirical scrutiny. Uh, and so that's, uh, and uh, yeah, at the risk of sounding a, a bit uh, narcissistically inflated, I think if there's one thing that we have done uh, that's worthy of a footnote someplace uh, is that we have over the decades on um, the created a large enough body of empirical work uh, such that there's now a discipline in psychology called experimental existential psychology. And there are a, a bundle of studies that we believe provides convergent support uh, for Becker's claims about the extensive role of, of death in life. And moreover, um, not everybody agrees with us. There's vigorous disagreement uh, about these ideas. And, and while that may sound, uh, this may sound counterintuitive, for us, the best indication uh, that uh, a set of ideas is being taken seriously in scientific discourse is when other people take the time uh, to be critical of it. Uh, and so we see this as important. We think there's a lot of evidence for what we call terror management theory. Uh, we think it has not yet been proven wrong. Other people from a variety of vantage points uh, have alternative ways of viewing these phenomenon. And just for folks that are listening that might take that as an indication of problems. In fact, it's quite the contrary. Science goes nowhere if everybody agrees. And science goes nowhere if you're the only one that's dabbling in a particular set of problems. So I'm ranting a bit, but I, I do think there's a lot of evidence for these ideas. I think that they're beginning to uh, be disseminated beyond experimental social psychology. And uh, most importantly, if Jeff and Tom and I were to keel over today, uh, I don't think that the work would stop, which is, again, the best indication uh, that something substantial has transpired, is that other folks are engaged, independent of our efforts. No, that, that, that's a very good point. Uh, of course, because this is in the, the early days, it will take a long time before people agree on everything. But for, for so long, existential philosophy was kind of in, in its own corner where you were either participated in it or scoffed at it from the outside. But the fact that there is healthy exchange and the fact that there is this 
dialogue between experimental methods and existential philosophy is a, a huge, huge step up from the from the past. Yes, and moreover, just to continue that for a moment, what I think is also exciting is the increasing connection right now between our what we just consider to be basic research to corroborate or rather to assess the merits of Becker's ideas. Um, now there's uh, clinicians intersecting uh, with this research uh, in a, a dialectically productive way. In other words, uh, we see clinicians using our research to design uh, accessible interventions. Uh, and uh, we have now become more poignantly and profoundly aware that there's a lot of people out in the clinical world uh, that are dabbling in existential approaches to therapy, whether they would describe it that way or not. And, and so we've become more attentive to what therapists are doing out in the so-called real world. They're paying more attention uh, to our work, which su suggests that death anxiety uh, is a prevailing concern in all psychological disorders. And I think this bodes well, perhaps, uh, for um, therapeutic interventions that have yet to be designed. Because without sounding too doomsday, uh, I think the world right now is completely saturated with death anxiety. And I think the degree of psychological apprehension, you know, I call it dis-ease, but a hyphen between dis and ease, I think that it, it is overwhelmed the mental health care system. I mean, I'm not the only one to say this, but uh, usually it's in the context of the pandemic, you know, that that crippled uh, the health care system. I, th I think it's more than that. You know, I think it's the incoming climate apocalypse combined uh, with the pandemic, uh, combined uh, with the increasing political polar polarization and racism. And, and frankly, in my country, um, we're on the cusp of fascism. I think all of those things are, are contributing to just massive doses of conscious and unconscious death anxiety. To the point uh, where it's beyond uh, conventional psychotherapy. This is more, and no disrespect to CBT, uh, but there is no protocolized manual for tweaking one's cognitions to render you psychologically secure in the midst of an existential crisis. And I'm hopeful that um, the, some of the projects I'm working on right now uh, may sound naive, but their efforts to that think about how do we develop scalable therapeutic interventions that might be able to be administered by folks in the community uh, to large groups of people. Um, and so I, I'm hoping that uh, there may be some immediate value to what we're doing yeah, in the wake of this particular historical moment, when I think existential concerns uh, are maximally salient, both consciously and not. Right. No, absolutely. I mean, it's it's insane that we don't talk about depression, just to take a point and example, as as the epidemic that it is. It 
affects such a vast amount of people in such serious crippling ways that it yeah i mean it's remarkable that we don't face yes. that head on let, let me ask you this so so there's this idea that uh psycho uh psychiatry will expand to to deal with these new sorts of methods but then there's this other counterintuitive idea that psychiatry might be inherently limited in the ways that it can make intervention that it can produce interventions because it's inherently designed to deal with dysfunctions in the way that we narrowly define them and then perhaps we might need other forms of uh whatever we want to call them but things that will take the place of that intervention um positive psychology is an idea that that comes in so what do you think about that do you imagine that psychiatry will internally expand that's a, that is a fine question uh, um I, I, to, I have to be honest. At first, I was skeptical uh, of positive psychology. And now here I am 20 years later, uh, honestly, both empirically per uh, and personally and conceptually drifting in that direction. So back to the original query, which is, um, is psychiatry intrinsically limited? And I think my provisional response is, yeah, to a degree, because psychiatry was derived from a medical model, uh, which does tend to, uh, as a default assumption, see everything as a direct manifestation of neuroanatomical or biochemical activity. And therefore, the first impulse vis-a-vis -vis intervention will tend to be pharmacological. Uh, and and uh, this is not always the case. I know of quite a few psychiatrists that are just as devoted to other kinds of interventions, uh, but the, the kind of standard approach to psychiatry is still pretty much anchored to a medical model. And so I think that's one uh, limitation. Uh, another possibility, so Otto Rank, who was one of Freud's disciples in the, in the denial of death, uh, Becker quotes Rank, and I'm going to botch it, but Rank said something like, uh, psychology uh, is a preponderantly negative and disintegrating ideology. And, and so here's Otto Rank, you know, a great, therapist, and I think this is in his book, Beyond Psychology, where he's like, I'm, I, I've spent 40 years uh, thinking about uh, living, now I'm just going to live. Uh, but Rock's point uh, is that um, psychiatry, as well as clinical psychology, um, is ultimately, I don't know what the, I was going to say flawed, but how about limited? Uh, because uh, the way that Ronk put it and the way that Becker describes it, it, you know, you go in and you see a psychiatrist or you see a psychologist. Uh, they do some, uh, some psychological archaeology and, and come up uh, with an explanation uh, of uh, why you are dissatisfied with yourself. And they, then they essentially leave you uh, to, with no way then to do much with that. In other words, they're like, here you are, 
uh, you know, it, it, you're a non-optimal self. Uh, I can explain to you, perhaps, uh, the nature of your misery or even the history of its origin, but that in no way offers any insights about what to do thereafter. And, and so that's just, and, and even Freud at one point said, you know, psychoanalysis can cure you of the misery of neurosis so you can come face to face with the misery of life. Oh, that was uplifting. Um, and so that's another uh, possible uh, way of seeing psychiatry as being a bit limited. And then what I would say, my preoccupation these days, uh, well, there's two other things. One is um, that, uh, and here's where I'm influenced very much uh, by um, on the floor in the, in the building that I'm in, the psych department's on the first floor and I got moved up because we didn't have enough offices. But I'm, I hang out now amongst the historians and the social workers and what they have pointed out and uh, what I was uh, aware of, but not sufficiently, is just the extent to which uh, really big institutional structures uh, have, uh, you know, an extraordinarily potent effect on psychological matters and psychiatry in an effort to to appear objective, uh, uh, masquerades as a political, a historical, uh, having nothing to do with social structures. And my point is, you're being political when you say you're apolitical. You're being historical when you say that you're a historical. And um, to me. Um, I think that's another important consideration that we uh, need to ponder. My my, my first uh, little academic uh, rant uh, was titled "Why America Causes Mental Illness." I don't know why it didn't go over that well, but but my point is is that I don't think we we are psychodynamically sufficiently aware. Uh, of how institutions impact uh, our interior mental lives, and we could do better on that. But then back to the positive psychology folks who, uh, you know, following Aristotle, uh, have argued, again, at first I thought they were just kind of, uh, you know, Woodstock-like hippies, um, uh, uh, overly naive and positive, and many of those folks are, but this is not uh, this is not the time to engage at that level. I mean, I, I was invited to the first positive psychology conference by Martin Seligman and Chick Mahal. Chicks make me high. The flow, dude. Uh, and, you know, and then I was never invited again because they're like, you're a downer. Stop talking about death. This is positive psychology. But the, the point, though, is that, you know, Aristotle... Uh, uh, he was adamant uh, that, you know, to live a good life, you know, they call it flourishing these days, is more than just the absence of negative symptoms. Uh, and what the positive psychologists have done now empirically is to demonstrate that fact uh, and uh, that the, that, the, that well-being um, is 
more than just the absence uh, of symptoms. I think the way that most folks think about flourishing these days, and it really does map on to Aristotle's, he's sitting on a rock 3,000 years ago with a chunk of feta cheese, and he's thinking about stuff uh, that today strikes me as quite uh, accurate. He's like, well, a flourishing individual um, has a sense of meaning and purpose, has a sense of self-efficacy, has a sense of moral virtue. Aristotle also talked about practical wisdom uh, and talked about the fact that it's impossible to flourish as an isolated individual in the absence of social relationships characterized but by trust and respect. And, and yeah, but, and so I think uh, that that uh, that there's lots of directions uh, that psychiatry and clinical psychology can be moving in, and and the good news is that they are. Uh, and so I, I'm working with some awesome folks, and we just did a study looking at a big data set, like eighty thousand uh, individuals, and it was looking at the relationship between a flourishing measure and suicidal ideology and behavior and self-harm. And sure enough, uh, what they found, what we found, uh, was that there was a strong negative correlation uh, between flourishing and suicidal behavior, ideology, and self-harm. In other words, the higher the self-reported flourishing, the lower were all these negative outcomes and that was after controlling for all of the negative symptoms like depression and loneliness. And so I would say on empirical grounds that we now know that there's something to strive for above and beyond the eradication of particular symptoms. Well, but that we also know, and you've probably seen this, the amazing research with psychedelics. Uh, and uh, you know, I'm I'm like an ancient hippie, so it's easy to dismiss my view as one too many Grateful Dead shows in my youth. But uh, the point is, is that the hippie days set us back 50 years because before uh, the 1960s, there was a massive literature from Europe uh, suggesting that under certain conditions that uh, experiences with psychedelics um, could have the same effect as uh, long-term meditation actually has the same effect as near-death experiences without having to nearly die. And I think this all bodes well. I think we're at a moment uh, where, in part, uh, I think, uh, as a result uh, of uh, empirical work in existential domains, it just doesn't sound quite as maniacally speculative but to think in these terms that there are a variety of ways uh, to infuse our lives uh, with meaning and value and in so doing uh, allow us to manage death anxiety uh, in a fashion that doesn't necessarily have deleterious consequences. And I think that's a, a fine goal aspirationally. Absolutely. It's it's very tricky to talk about uh, because you're always fearful that people might take the, these things dogmatically, right? That you mentioned psychedelics. 
Uh, well, there are instances where where you actually do need traditional psychiatry and pharmacology. And there are instances where you do need to stay away from psychedelics. Absolutely. So it's, I'm always fearful that people are listening to the nuances of these. these. Yes, so uh, absolutely. So let's say this again, because uh, this is uh, none of these statements, or, to, you know, actually to back up, you know, like in psychobabble, you know, the point is whenever we make a declarative statement, like, oh, psychedelics have been shown uh, to be beneficial, you know, the immediate question should be for whom and under what conditions. And I, I think you make a, a fine point. And our view these days is, you know, trying to be uh, pragmatic and eclectic. Um, yeah, psychedelics for one person, it might be meditation for another. It might be telling stories. You know, there's a great literature now about uh, how uh, in extraordinarily but palliative and uplifting it is to just being asked to tell one's life story in the company of somebody who is interested uh, in listening. Uh, and yeah, I think right now, to get back to an earlier point, you know, where there is a degree uh, of psychological need uh, that is such that um, it would be silly to confine our inquiry to a single approach and assume uh, that it's going to work for all folks at all times. It's a great point. Do you think, do you think um, clinical approaches, psychiatry, inherently function on a, on a dysfunction model in that uh, in order to apply psychotherapy or psychiatry, you need to imagine that there's something wrong with the person, uh, some sort of damage in them. And, and then the, the reason I ask this, where I'm going with this is, well, if we're to take Becker's claim seriously that death anxiety isn't something wrong, it isn't some sort of anatomical or physiological damage in the person, it is inherently a a part of what it means to be human, then the, that, does that pose a, a problem for a dysfunction model of psychiatry? Yeah, I think it poses a challenge to take a closer look. That I This is awesome. I, the, the I wish I was young. I mean, I've been silly because what I say now is, you know, um, but well, what I say is that if you're just starting college now and if you want to do this work, you need three PhDs. You got to have cognitive neuroscience. You got to have another one in kind of philosophy, you know, broadly defined as uh, back in the old days when uh, psychology, sociology, philosophy were more unified. Yeah, and then you need a PhD in in like statistics and methods uh, for uh, the 21st century. And the the reason I'm mentioning all these things is that I'm seeing work now all over the world. There's some scholars in Asia, and this is to my discredit. Uh, I've reviewed papers, and I don't know necessarily the author's name. There's some other work. Um, from Israeli researchers, and, and they're looking at the effects of death reminders on literally individual neurons at this point. Uh, and they're, they are claiming to be uh, uh, at the point of having a neurological model 
of what happens as we begin to come to terms uh, with death, because uh, the goal is not to eliminate death anxiety. That's not possible, nor would it be desirable. You know, that's my silly joke. If you were a baby, uh, you know, and your mom and dad were out at a concert and they forgot about you for a couple of days uh, and you were not worried about anything, well, you would be dead. In other words, we need anxiety, or at least a bit of it, uh, to be alive. And so that when we when Albert Camus says, come to terms with death, thereafter, anything is possible. Well, the one thing he's not saying is possible is that death anxiety will be obliterated. Uh, rather, what we can hope for is that it's not constantly buried under the psychological bushes, you know, where it comes back allegorically to bear bitter fruit. Um, it, it's, it, it just ultimately comes down to uh, what happens uh, when we stop repressing death anxiety. And yes, at that point uh, where I see the neuroscientists and the psychiatrists going, it is we think that there are ways of looking at what happens as people are coming to terms with death, and that allows for the expansion, I think, of psychiatric discourse to go beyond the mitigation of dysfunction, as opposed to the alteration of basic processes uh, to render them um, such that uh, psychodynamically uh, and emotionally and intuitively, uh, we are more comfortable uh, with the reality of the human condition. Right. Absolutely. Confrontation is a tough question. Yeah, I mean, if, if living forever was was an attractive option, then we would have solved the problem that everyone would just want to live forever and you wouldn't have a problem. But that's not an attractive option either. Exactly right. That's right. 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 So, so what are... Are there any generalities, commonalities that, that you find in people who are coming to terms with, with death? Wow. Okay. So awesome question. And so here we are. Um, I, I got to go back and, and, uh, and admit that I, I cavalierly um, shrugged off what the positive psych folks were doing. Uh, and it turns out that their, their work is now converging with ours. What I mean by that more particularly is that for decades, what following Ernest Becker, our remedy for death anxiety was to boost self-esteem. And, and, and that's because Becker said self-esteem is an anxiety buffer. We demonstrated that that's the case. We brought people into the lab and threatened them with electrical shocks. And after we momentarily elevated their self-esteem by like giving them fake feedback on a IQ test, it was remarkable. But just uh, having your self-esteem momentarily enhanced, reduced physiological arousal in anticipation of an actual physical threat. In other words, self-esteem is pretty potent stuff. However, it, it, there's a downside to using self-esteem uh, in order to manage existential anxieties, 
and the downside is that uh, the way that we get self-esteem is by adhering to the dominant values of our culture. And, and we live in a culture that, um, to I don't mind annoying people, uh, in America, we're essentially narcissistic sociopaths who are only concerned about being the best at whatever it is that we do. And, and so to have uh, enhanced self-esteem in America in the 21st century requires almost that we inflate ourselves to ridiculous proportions while looking down on those who we uh, need to see as inferior to us. Like what the positive psychologists have done, and, and this should for some uh, have, uh, that reek in the positive sense of some Eastern thought of alliance well uh, with like Buddhist practice as I understand it, uh, but Positive psychologists, they talk about a kind of a tripod of existentially uplifting phenomenon. That they, they talk about it in terms of awe and humility and gratitude. And they're like, hey, but you know, um, Kierkegaard said that it went, if you're smart enough to know that you're here, you know, because we're conscious, he's like, that's awesome as well as dreadful. And of course, we spent 40 years on the dreadful side of things, right? You're going to die. You can get hit by a comet. You know, you're a breathing piece of meat. But we didn't attend adequately to how awesome it is to be alive uh, because you know that you're here. Uh, and so basically what the positive psychologists have established is that when we have this sense of awe, when we just wake up one day and are like, life is great, that has a collateral effect, and that's to make us humble, right? And I always have to define this to Americans because they see humility uh, as a pejorative descriptor uh, be because they equate it with self-deprecation, which it's not, right? Humility is just realizing uh, accurately your position in the universe which is literally quite infinitesimal and inconsequential. You know, if you think about it, you're born in a time, you know, not of your choosing and a place that you don't dictate and a body that you didn't get to select. You're here for a tiny amount of time and then you're summarily obliterated, which seems demoralizing. But the point is that, uh, but it's not demoralizing because even if you are a tiny little speck, you are still connected to everything and everyone. Moreover, you don't know, you can't say uh, that you're not going to do something in your life that isn't massively important or transformational. I may not be Einstein, but I may be walking to work earlier today and I just passed somebody on the street. We just look at each other and kind of like say hello and, and what do I know? Maybe that person was walking to a bridge to jump off and kill themselves. But because we had that momentary connection, they don't. Well, maybe that's the next Jesus or Buddha. And unknown to me, I actually contributed to the salvation of Earth. So anyway, the point is, is that uh, to be humble it is to just recognize that our, our appropriate place in the world as it is scaled 
And that in turn, the positive psychologists say, uh, makes us grateful. Uh, and, uh, and we're grateful for being alive. We're grateful, I say to anyone who will listen to me, I'm like, look, if you slept at a bed last night, if you had lunch today, uh, you should be effusively grateful. And that's before we looked at the news and gape in horror at what happened yesterday in Turkey, what's happening every day uh, in the Ukraine, or, or fill in the blank. Uh, and so the point is, and here's the big point, and that is that we know empirically that awe and humility and gratitude are, they all effectively mitigate death anxiety. So when we remind people that they're going to die, you know, in our studies, they do a lot of things that they, they like people who share their beliefs, but they hate people who are different and they're more likely to vote uh, for fascist leaders. They're more likely uh, to spend tons of money on stupid stuff that they don't need. So to me, those are they're more likely to deny that humans are animals. They're more uncomfortable with their bodies. Those are all maladaptive responses to death anxiety. But that there's a much more uplifting, benign, if not benevolent, alternative, and and that's to go in the more holistically and positively existential direction of awe and humility and gratitude. And for the moment, I'm kind of preoccupied with that because if there's one thing that we can cling to. At, for me, at least, uh, uh, in in the current world, uh, it's just to be delighted each day to find myself awakening and, and to be in a position uh, where my life is, for the most part, uh, you know, more than anything that I could ever have hoped for. Absolutely. Reckoning with this will be a central, central thing for humanity moving forward. Uh, it, to, to me, one of the most salient parts of Becker is when he he asks us to evaluate if the if the values in society the, the spouses are the ones that allow that it allows you to attain that's correct and that honestly that was for me 40 years ago that's what got my attention uh, uh, I, I i was already being silly my first paper was you know and talk was you know why does america cause mental illness and, and my response, and this was the, you know, I started this the week after I read Becker for the first time, and it's because we adhere to cultural values that are not realistically attainable by the average individual. And that's, that's what I see happening right now uh, all around us, because we live in a world where we're told uh, if you're not an idiot and if you try hard, uh, you can be just as rich as like Bill Gates or Elon Musk. And if you're not, it, it's your fault. Uh, and uh, that's just, um, frankly, nonsense. There is no economic mobility in, in the United States. It's easier to get out of poverty in Bangladesh. And, and moreover, uh, again, silliness aside, uh, we're a culture 
but that denigrates old age. So even if you're getting old in America, uh, that's a bad thing. And if you're a woman, uh, and, uh, you know, if I can't floss my teeth with you, you're too fat. And uh, if you're older than your mid-20s, you're too old. And again, I'm being a little silly, but it turns out that this is a recipe for psychological despair. Uh, we teach our kids to um, to to really desperately yearn uh, for the, the goals and values that, that are simply unattainable. And, and here's where I like Becker's point, where he's not over-romanticizing the past, uh, except to note that when you look at uh, Christianity in the Middle Ages, uh, where people were told uh, that, in principle, everybody's eligible for immortality. Doesn't matter if you're rich or not. Doesn't matter if you're the pope or the president or a dipstick for a cesspool. If you just behave with integrity, God will shine his countenance upon you. And I'm, I'm re I really do forcefully advocate for Becker's ideas, which is we need cultural values that are realistically attainable. And um, without sounding silly, there was a time uh, where it was okay to be average in America. It, there was a time uh, where just being decent and responsible uh, was held in the highest regard. And yeah, I'm back to Nietzsche when he's like, hey, we have to reevaluate all values. And recognize that uh, there are some that would be timely and important to abandon at this point. Right, absolutely. I mean, even given the calamity of the past, it really does feel like we're coming to a pretty dangerous precipice in human history. Uh, That's right. Yeah, given climate and inequality, the rise of fascism and war, it seems like a pretty dangerous crossroads. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and do you, it, it also does feel like like economic and political solutions are what we need to focus on because they seem like the practical way to maneuver the future. But it does seem like so it, it's so down to the core of what human behavior is that we need a large scale reorientation of how human psychology works to be able to seriously address these challenges. I think so, honestly. Well, Ed, yeah, I, I do. I think that's profound. Um, and I don't know if it's if it makes sense to get into this, but that that's what I see right now in the U.S. with all of the arguing about being woke uh, and uh, is really uh, uh, basically, w w you know, I've already said, I think America's drifting in a fascist direction. And I think that politicians who I would characterize uh, as fascistic are going to enormous lengths to prevent people from stepping back and trying to see more holistically uh, the relationship between cultural values and uh, individual well-being. You know, the, the fact of the matter is, is that I don't think we'll be able to foster uh, global well-being without a radical alteration in our economic system. 
No, so this, uh, you know, again, these are people of goodwill could disagree, uh, but you have Steven Pinker, smarter than me at Harvard, writing books about how uh, the free market is great. Let's just do more of the same. And I'm like, that's crazy. That's like you're on a boat, uh, you know, headed towards Niagara Falls and you think everything's great, but you don't know that you're just about to tumble uh, over the abyss. Uh, I see, uh, and, and th this may, I don't mean to be cynical, but I, I do see most of the, the what we value, the way that we teach people to behave uh, is really uh, an implicit way of maintaining a, a particular form of economic organization. You know, we're really, uh, to me, it all goes back to John Locke. Uh, Americans uh, were not very literate, but uh, I, I always say to my conservative friends, you need to read John Locke to understand why you're saying the stuff that you now are, because Locke's point was, uh, in a state of nature, there's no societies. There's just autonomous individuals pursuing uh, their self-interest. And, and that the, and that we reluctantly enter civil society uh, in order to protect our property, essentially. And, and, uh, and Locke then went on and he said, well, yo, uh, there's no private property in nature, but surely you own your body and surely you have a right to exist. And so uh, you know, if there's an apple tree a hundred yards away and I walk over and pick an apple, well, the act of picking it, my labor turns common into private. And, and you know, Locke goes on and he's like, I'm entitled to as many apples as I want as long as I don't waste them or rob anybody else's apples. And then he's like, well, okay, but once there was money, Apples rot, but money doesn't. Now I can have as much money as I want. And then he says, well, people vary in industry. Some are smarter, some are lazier. And so it's just natural that there's going to be inequality. And Locke is like, yay for inequality. It's natural and it's good for humanity because the rising tide lifts all boats. My point is, is that there's no evidence for any of that. Uh, you know, these are some of the most obviously wrong ideas in the history of Earth. A and yet they serve as the basis for the values that we teach our kids. Be competitive, be focused on uh, your own personal pursuit of profit. That in the long run will benefit everyone around you. Uh, and I can't even remember how we drifted in this direction, except that I'm, I'm back to the point, uh, which is that, yeah, for me, um, the, we're going to have to take a hard look at the world to get ourselves out of uh, what I think is just an interesting dynamic. Uh, Max Weber, the dead German sociologist in the book on the uh, Protestant work ethic, you know, he talked about how we're in this funky situation. He's like, yeah, in the early stages of the Industrial Revolution, uh, it benefited everybody. But then he's like, somehow uh, we got imprisoned in our own prosperity. That uh, now 
we're born into a world that's just a mechanical process of buying and selling and that we're on this increasingly frenetic hamster wheel of life. And, and the, the most eerie line in that entire book it is when Weber says that I suspect that this will keep going until the last lump of fossilized coal has been burnt. And every time I read that, I'm like, that is exactly what's happening. We're incinerating Earth. The Shell, the oil company, made like $36 billion in the last quarter. And here we are again in my country, probably about to elect people to public office to promote that view. But which is not only suicidal for the planet, uh, but it's suicidal for the psychological well-being of the people who live uh, within this system. Uh, Michael Sandel, Harvard professor, wrote a book, The Tyranny of Merit, uh, where he's like, look, uh, we, we have to understand what's happening. When you live in a world like America, where you, it only counts if you're the best, well, Think about the implications. That means N minus one people in every category are losers. And he's like, no wonder why Americans are either depressed or enraged. We've set up a system that makes most of us abject failures. And I do think we're going to have to tweak that. The, the average person has to be average. Exactly. There you go. <laughs> there you go. It just doesn't make sense any other way. That's right. No, it's tricky because, I mean, um, go, going back to political theory, hops and locks, state of danger, social contract theory, you know, for a number of years, it became kind of kind of kosher to make fun of that from a psychological perspective because psychologists discovered altruism and sociality as a centrality. And we thought, okay, Habesian, the old Habesian conception of self-interested actors as a basis for organizing political systems was wrong. But there's something to it. It, it keeps coming back. And if you take a look at how society is organized today, it's hard to it's hard to prove Hobbes wrong completely. That's exactly right. And I, again, this is I really enjoyed uh, speaking with you today because uh, that that's my take on things. Is uh, it, it's it's unfortunate to view things on a continuum where if we go one way, it means we're moving away from the other, and I. The way you just put it is is magnificent. There is ample evidence, starting with Darwin, uh, that uh, we are at our best, uber social, hyper cooperative, extraordinarily altruistic to the point of heroic, at least to members of our tribe. On the other hand, that in no way, in my estimation, along with just watching the news every day, uh, uh, that does not obliterate, unless this is a Mary Poppins film, uh, the darker side uh, of human behavior, which we also see manifested every day. That's right. Absolutely. And it's tricky on the solution end of it, too, because, I mean, it, like, I see great psychologists either interfacing with economists or political scientists and then working on policy solutions or or stuff like that, or they're making these larger sort of philosophical existential claims. And 
And, you know, you want to support the policy side because that seems actionable. That seems practical and it can achieve something re realistic in our lifetimes. But then again, you you take a real look at the state of politics today and, and you think, well, really, I mean, the, are these just empty gestures that we're making and we really are doomed completely? And then do we actually need a broader solution? But then that seems unattractive because it seems so grandiose and unattainable that one becomes lost and conceptually confused as to what to do. Yeah. No, again, excellent point. And here I, I'm stuck um, quoting from uh, Joseph Henrich. He's the head of the anthropology department at Harvard. He wrote a book on cultural evolution. And, you know, I love it at the end where he just says, you know, um, humans are pretty crappy at designing interventions. Uh, and that that's, and he doesn't say this cynically. He's just like, it's a plea uh, for humility and the capacity to consider multiple approaches. Uh, and this also strikes me uh, as an important stipulation moving forward politically, economically, uh, and psychologically. You know, I, I do think that in the West, we have this linear view uh, of progress, uh, which, you know, is limiting in two ways. One is it assumes things will always get better. And, you know, just the notion of a line suggests that there's uh, one path to get to where we're hoping to be. Yeah, and I think those are misguided uh, assumptions that are... And Nietzsche makes that point. I mean, there's lots of problems with Nietzsche, but he makes the point that if you commit yourself to a view of uh, ever-ending, never-ending progress, then you will always be beholden or lesser to a future version of yourself. And that is that puts you into a space of existential dread. Yeah. No, no, I, I, I love that. No. Again, I'm getting old because Nietzsche, uh, as a youth, uh, you know, was exciting. And then I'm like, oh, oh w what a lunatic. And now I read him and I'm like, yeah, okay. Uh, he was florid at times and yet uh, am just amazing. Uh, and uh, one of my favorite thoughts along those lines is when Nietzsche says something like, you know, uh, we always see people as courageous uh, when they vigorously defend their ideas. And he's like, that doesn't take any courage. The real courage is to stand back from your ideas and to subject them to the same critical scrutiny that you would if somebody else was articulating them. And I just, I find that awesome and um, uh, something to aspire towards. Um, our, our mentor in graduate school was a great scientist. And if we went to his office and said, Jack, we have an idea. Let me tell you uh, why it's right. He would be like, shut up, but tell me why you might be wrong. And, uh, and again, I think that uh, the kind of uh, critical skepticism of the Nietzsche's of the world, which should not be confused with the uh, kind of hopeless nihilism of a Dostoevsky character in a Russian novel, uh, I think that's something we that would be very important to reinvigorate the, the sciences as well as clinical approaches. Now, that's a very important practice. I, I had a I had a TA once who told me a story that I'll, it just stuck with me forever. But uh, they she went to art school, 
and they they worked on a project where they had to create a sculpture and there was like a term project they worked on it for months and at the end of it the instructor revealed the second part of the assignment which was they had to destroy it and they had to find an interesting way of destroying it and that just blew me crazy I'm like that that's that's so interesting uh, to be able to devote yourself to something like that but then also to to bring yourself to destroy it in an interesting way Ooh, i love that and that's my understanding of like the sand paintings of native uh americans that just these magnificent um i i find it uh the same it takes my breath away because um and I, I do think i find it the ultimate testament to humanity is to be able to appreciate something and for it then to be destroyed for lack of a better word because now the value of whatever it is that you do is not predicated on its extended existence over time uh, and to me that's one way of disentangling the 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 beauty of uh, anything uh, from the death denying elements that necessitate that it has to be there and remain at the, in its original form i mean especially in academia it's 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 always fleeting i mean the, the most brilliant work that we do today in in 30 40 years time will be just common sense to an undergraduate in 50 years it'll be like common sense to a high schooler right so why why get so attached with it just let it let it flow by yeah no i i yeah i think that that is really awesome and uh that's what i try to remind myself of every day my my joke you know i'm gonna be 70 next year i'll retire in a couple of years even though it's like awesome i can't believe they still pay me uh, to like read books and and have these kinds of conversations but um you know it it's nice when it's nice when someone says oh i've read your book and let's talk and blah 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 and i was like yeah that's awesome but the fact of the matter is is that whenever i retire um i'll be forgotten by the time i get to the parking lot and that's how it should be <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> absolutely um yeah so you mentioned nietzsche um have you we're talking about Nietzsche. Heidegger can't be far behind. Uh, have you started paying paying attention to? So that for, yeah, just belatedly. So Nietzsche uh, was in my youth, and then had to come back. Heidegger, I just three or four years ago uh, got to for the first time, and now I'm on Levinas. What have you found anything interesting in Heidegger? I have. I I like um the. I'm not a philosopher, so I can't evaluate the the merits of the philosophical argument oh i'm more captivated by the second chunk of being in time uh, which a lot of philosophers don't like and they don't like it because well again not to get into a disciplinary pissing match they don't like it because it's psychological to to me that's where heidegger lays out his idea about what happens to us in response to angst, you know, which, you know, he's, um, it's anxiety with a sense of uncanniness. Just when you 
he describes it as you feel unsettled or kind of homeless. And, you know, he traces that to death anxiety. And then he's like, okay, what happens? And for him, it can go in one of two directions. He describes, he calls it a flight from death. He says, most of us, all of us from time to time in response to death anxiety, um, whether we're aware of it or not, that we just fervently embrace the social roles that we inhabit in the context of our culture and, and, uh, and, and, and in so doing become culturally constructed meat puppets who are tranquilized by the trivial. He got that phrase uh, from Kierkegaard. So Heidegger to me is a secular Kierkegaard. He's saying that's one way and that's most of us do that from time to time. And some Americans do that uh, all the time. You know, they're in the house spraying cheese whiz on a cracker, you know, drinking a 30 pack of cheap beer before they hop in uh, their SUV to buy a machine gun at a lemon at Walmart because it's a dollar cheaper. And, and so again, they're just so, but uh, is so frenetically devoted to their day to day activities. Uh, but they're actually caricatures of stereotypes of social roles that that uh, Heidegger calls that inauthentic, and but he is quick to stipulate we are all inauthentic from time to time, and I like his language when he says that when you're doing that you are fleeing from death and you're falling away from what he calls your own self because that's not you, all right. But then he says it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, you can respond to anxiety. And here he's using Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard said, look, anxiety both repels and attracts. And so the repelling part is when we flee and become, you know, culturally constructed meat puppets. On the other hand, I love when Heidegger says something along the lines of anxiety is also yourself summoning yourself to become itself. And that at our best, this gives us, and it doesn't have to be conscious, he calls it a moment of vision, but it doesn't need to be a minute and it doesn't need to be conscious. He's just like, okay, but sometimes death anxiety gives us clarity. It opens up a mental horizon where I see that I'm a culturally constructed artifact. I'm Sheldon Solomon, born in New York. I'm a psychology professor. Yeah, fine, but I could have been born, you know, I'm stuck on, I could have been born in the third century in Mongolia as a goat herder or even a goat. And, and, and the point is, is that when I recognize my essentially historically contingent, ultimately arbitrary nature, uh, for a moment at least, all of the cultural symbolism that I basically use to define myself and by which I live every day that has been momentarily obliterated. And while that could make me tumble into the existential abyss, it can also give me a renewed sense of meaning and purpose. So Heidegger talks about coming to terms with mortality and then he describes somebody who has done that, and he says that these are folks, he characterizes them uh, as 
uh, in terms of anticipatory resoluteness. So he says, these are people looking forward and whatever they're doing, I had to look up resolute because I grew up in America. It, it means to persist with admirable determination. And then he says, we will also have solicitous regard for other people and other things. Heidegger's often accused of being too individualistic and not adequately social. No, that's not true. He says a, an authentic individual cares not only about other people, but other things. And then he's like, when we have those experiences, our life appears to us to be an ongoing adventure perfused with unshakable joy. And when I read that, I'm like, yo, dude, that's like awesome. And again, he's not a simpleton. None of this is to suggest that that obliterates anxiety or suffering. Uh, but rather it gives us a stance towards life uh, that enable us to uh, appreciate uh, the best aspects of life, but while accepting the inevitable anxiety and suffering that arises as a consequence of being human, and in so doing renders us capable uh, of managing it more maturely and effectively. And yeah, so I, I like, I think Heidegger um, is, um, I, I like his depiction uh, of that process. And I think a lot of folks in the century that has followed have uh, borrowed from it without knowing, myself included, that that's what we're doing. Right, absolutely. No, there's, I think there's a great similarity between Becker and Heidegger in that. Me too. And this would be the question I would ask him. If I ever had the privilege of talking directly is why did you end up uh, so preoccupied with Kierkegaard, which, of course, is a, that's fine. Uh, but without mentioning Heidegger uh, as historically derivative and a secular alternative, what a lot of people struggle with with Kierkegaard, myself included, it is his uh, adamant claim that the leap of faith necessary to become authentic must be literally faith in not only a God, uh, but the Christian God. Uh, and um, yeah, so anyway, I, I, I do wonder why Becker ended up uh, preoccupied with Maybe, Maybe this is, maybe it's just historical contingency and kind of the danger of reading Heidegger in the, I mean, there, you know, there's this sort of exclusive version of Heidegger and this inclusive version of Heidegger or this liberatory view of Heidegger and then this Nazi view of Heidegger um, and that might confuse. Or... Well, luckily I've been able to dodge that by virtue of my ignorance um, uh, of all of these things. I, I ignored him for 40 years because he was a Nazi and there's no doubt in my opinion uh, that he was and that makes the work to me even more interesting. But in some ways, he, he is showing, you know, to borrow from Nietzsche, that he too is all too human. You know, even more interesting to me as I've been getting better acquainted with Hannah Arendt. I love her book on the origin of totalitarianism, you know, and then to realize that, you know, she was romantically involved with Heidegger. So here she is, a Jewish student of Heidegger's, involved with him and, and still defended him. Uh, after World War II, um, and it just shows how interesting people are.
sport. Yeah. Yeah, but that's so if I got to talk to Heidegger, I would ask him if he ever thought about what he's saying about the flight from death uh, in light of his own uh, political predilections. Just, just another way of saying what I do to the Skidmore students is like, well, you know, if you want to figure out why somebody's miserable, you can usually do that in like five or six weeks. I can teach you. Uh, but if you want to figure out why you're miserable, you need to look in a mirror. That'll take five or six years. <laughs> no, no. I mean, the, the, there's debates amongst historians and they're important. But at some point, we need to recognize that any thinker from the past will come with baggage. And the real meat of the work is just what we can take away from it and not what they meant by it. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. So are you just sort of to end off here? Are you hopeful for the future of term management theory? I, I don't care much about the future of term management theory. I, I, I no, I, I'm hoping I'm not deluding myself. Well, when I say that we were trained uh, to be scientists, uh, I love reading Ben Franklin's autobiography because Franklin says, hey, um, you know, I did these studies. Some people say I'm right. Some people say I'm wrong. But the studies aren't going to go away. And um, if I'm right, that's fine. If I'm wrong, that's fine as long as we figure it out and go in a different direction. What I, what I say about terror management theory is I don't think we're wrong yet. I, I think that, um, and I think that the theory is still producing interesting hypotheses that when tested so far have produced results that are sufficiently consistent with the theory, but that it doesn't require either abandoning it or, or revising it to the point where it has little to do with the original formulation. Yeah, but if that happens, I think that's fine. Again, I wish I was a little younger. A, a term management theory, you know, is basically going on 50 years old. I think it needs to be updated in light of uh, Becker's writing, of, I think, our understanding of evolution. So I, I was referring to Henrik's work on cultural evolution. You know, in term management theory, we talk about cultural worldviews as if their sole function is to deny death. When Henrik points out that uh, cultural worldviews contain the accumulated knowledge and wisdom of thousands of years, uh, and we need to, as terror management theorists, integrate that view of culture uh, with uh, the way that we have framed terror management theory. Similarly, I I've been recently trying to get a better handle uh, on a, the developmental process. You know, we don't come into the world aware of death, but we are at some point. And uh, I think that uh, the work on theory of mind and uh, on, um, or what do they call it, shared attention, uh, I think all of that is really important. So uh, if I had a decade to just lay out, I would want to try and write uh, just one more take at, all right, what, what term management theory, let's say in the 
21st century. But no, my my hope is that Jeff and Tom and I will be jars of formaldehyde in front of some building someplace and that people will continue to pursue existential questions uh, without uh, being, uh, you know, without being imprisoned by uh, our particular theoretical take. I, I find it um, delightful to see these ideas wafting into other disciplines. And that gives me hope. And um, yeah, beyond that, and I know maybe sounding silly and maybe overly naive, that these kinds of ventures uh, give me hope. What Ernest Becker wrote in the 1970s, he's like, there's a lot of truth out there. And we're almost choking on truth. And he, in the denial of death, he said, we got to synthesize the truths and condense them into, you know, nuggets of wisdom that in his last book, Escape from Evil, he's like, and that, and then we need to broadly disseminate these notions so that but people in power, as well as just people in general, can have access to them. And that's not going to happen um, with the, our work as academics. You know, I tell people, if, you're having an, if, if you have insomnia, uh, I'll send you one of our experimental papers. You'll be napping in minutes. Uh, but what you're trying to do and what other uh, younger scholars uh, are doing is to parlay the 21st century technology into this extraordinarily right-minded effort to get important ideas framed in ways that a lot of people might appreciate them. So this gets back to uh, what I hope I said when we started, and that's like, I was blown away when I saw the list of people. Um, I thought at first, oh, yeah, I'll talk to you. I'll talk to anybody. And uh, I was like, okay, let me see who you've spoken to. And I, I was like, this is like awesome. This is not, we're not just talking to social psychologists. We're, we're looking at a range of questions from a variety of disciplinary perspectives. Uh, and uh, again, I'll, I'll go academic -y. in the Henrik book on cultural evolution. He talks about uh, how we need to get away from this idea of the great man or woman, you know, changing the world solely through their own pursuits and understand that great ideas emerge from large piles of people but exchanging massive amounts of information. That's why I'm optimistic. I'm like, you, you folks do what you're doing. I'll keep sitting here reading some books. So we'll hope for the best. Oh, th thank you so much. That's a huge, huge compliment. Thank you. Yeah, I mean it. I, 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 I do. I think that, um, yeah, this is the way, and uh, it's a good way. And uh, it's and it's yeah, it's just been awesome. Uh, I appreciate having the opportunity to. to just get together. It's a real pleasure.